This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. When Joseph asked me to give a talk, uh, I sort of thought that I would review a little bit of literature that I don't know that you're aware of. Perhaps you are. You'll, we'll see if you are. Uh, this isn't anything that I'm actually doing any research on. Um, one of my students did some research on some of this stuff. And I may do some research on it in the future. But I, I, I wanted to go over um, a literature that is just burgeoning, at least uh, in the United States, with respect to the consequences of ethnic heterogeneity, particularly on the provision of, of collective goods. So that's what this talk is going to be about. But I, I happily welcome questions pretty much any time. And um, want to hear what you have to say about this. Yesterday, I, I had tea with, with uh, Lord uh, Perec at the House of Lords, who has written a lot about multiculturalism. I don't, I don't know if you know his work. I actually don't, but, but um, um, a very, a very uh, interesting guy. And he started telling me about a whole literature about this that's sort of a British literature that I'm unaware of. So perhaps I can tell you more about this American literature. You can tell me, you know, those of you who, uh, who know something about it, um, something about the British literature, and we can compare notes to some degree, OK? So I'm just going to read this thing to you. And as I said before, you know, uh, feel free to interrupt. Let me just clarify. Do you all know what collective goods are? OK. Well, there's a, there's a distinction um, that started in economics with um, Paul Samuelson, um, which talks about three types of goods. There are private goods, there are collective goods, and public goods. And um, you all know what private goods are. Your shirt and your pens and your shoes are private goods. They are things that can be purchased uh, in the marketplace, and you, they're in, and you have total control of them once you own them. That's a private good. So what's a public good? A public good is a, a good that has two fundamental characteristics to it. In the first place, it's not excludable, which means that I can't keep you, if I produce a public good, I can't keep you from consuming it. So one of the typical examples of a public good is a lighthouse, okay? Um, now think about it for a second. Um, how does a lighthouse get built? I mean, uh, who funds the building of a, of a lighthouse? You know what a lighthouse is? Okay, so, you know, uh, do, they, uh, do they grow like mushrooms? Could be private individuals originally when they were first sort of invented. Well, what about now? More, it's, uh, yeah, probably government okay, okay. So, and how does the government pay for lighthouses? Taxes. Taxes, right. So, when the British government sets up a lighthouse, say at the Nore or someplace like this, you know, you, I don't know how many of you are British, but British citizens 
are, are paying for that, okay? But that doesn't mean that a ship who comes from Germany or Turkey or Denmark doesn't get to use that lighthouse. They also get to. There's no way once that lighthouse is built that any ship from any country in the world can be excluded from using it. Using it meaning using it to, to, to make its bearings, to help its uh, navigation, okay? So a public good is defined by the fact that um, no one can be excluded from cons consuming it. And there's another element that's less important that's called that it's non-rival, which means really that the more I consume the public good, it doesn't affect your ability to consume it. So it's not subject to crowding. And a lighthouse is, is, is that way as well, okay? Now, a collective good is in between a public good and, and uh, a private good. It, it is somewhat excludable. It's excludable only to members outside the group. So one of the things that's a collective good, for instance, is the National Health Service. Okay? I'm visiting Britain. If I get sick and I go to the hospital, guess what? You know, I, 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 I have to pay for my medical treatment. And you don't because you Brits don't because um, that's a collective good that you get as a function of British citizenship. So what this paper is about is in this paper, what this talk is about is the relationship between ethnic heterogeneity and the provision of collective goods. So what I want to ask is, to what extent does ethnic heterogeneity have an effect on a country's ability to produce collective goods like a social insurance scheme, the National Health Service, welfare provisions in general that are a that are entitlements that everybody within a country gets to, all citizens within the country get to be able to consume. Okay, that's the question on the table here. Okay, are there any questions about that definition that I rattled through rather quickly? Okay. I should tell you also, <laughs> because public goods are non-excludable, and because collective goods are non-excludable to the members of the group, and the group could be as large as a society, this means that it's problematic to, pay, to, to produce them and to, to pay for them. Because rational individuals have an incentive to consume a public good or a collective good without paying for it, and that's, in other words, they have an incentive to free ride on the production of public goods because if they don't pay for it, they still get to use it. Now, in the United States, we have an example of this. Um, it's called National Public Radio. How many of you are, fr uh, are familiar with that? All right, in, in the United States, there's this thing called National Public Radio, which for the moment is, is partially subsidized by the government. And because it's partially subsidized by the government, it has to go... Uh, raise money from its listeners, okay? So every year, very annoying, it, it uh, stops its regular programming and puts its hand out and says, please support National Public Radio. Now, if you're a free rider, you will turn that off and you'll wait until the, the campaign is over and then you'll turn it on because you don't have to pay for National Public Radio in order to listen to it. Because you, you can be pretty assured that a lot of other people, suckers, will, will pay for it, and you can be a free rider. This is the case of all collective goods and public goods. 
So if these things are going to be produced, there has to generally be some way of, of motivating people not to be f free riders. That's the difference between collective and public goods and private goods. In, private, in a situation of private goods, if you want to buy that Armani suit and you go into the store, you can't buy it unless you hand over a whole bunch of money to the salesman. He just won't give you the suit. You can't free ride on that suit. If you want to buy a new BMW, you can't do it unless you fork over the money. If you want to buy a house, you better have a mortgage and so on and so forth. Okay? So there's no possibility of free riding on public goods and that's why the market can allocate uh, private goods very easily. That's what the market is designed to allocate, private goods. It isn't so effective at allocating public and collective goods. All right. So this talk is about the relationship between ethnic heterogeneity and collective goods. The issue is currently a subject of considerable debate in the literature, and perhaps I should say the literatures. Uh, whereas the proponents of multiculturalism argue that ethnic heterogeneity on balance has beneficial outcomes for developed societies, there's a large empirical literature suggesting that its effects are deleterious for the production of collective goods. Politicians have also increasingly stepped into the fray. Last month, the German Chancellor Merkel declared that multiculturalism had failed in her country and the rise of right-wing parties across the European continent and in the UK itself suggests that support for multiculturalism has eroded nearly across the board. Canada remains exceptional in this regard. Whereas much of this debate is normative, revolving around questions of justice and civil rights and issues such as the wearing of the burqa, the right to build mosques and minarets, and language policy in schooling, this discussion here that I'm going to give to you is limited to a consideration of positive arguments about the overall effects of ethnic heterogeneity on collective good provision. I discuss the nature of the production function for the provision of collective goods in democratic societies and conclude on this basis that ethnic heterogeneity tends to have a dampening effect on the provision of collective goods. This conclusion is largely consistent with a large and growing empirical literature in sociology, political science, and economics. So, uh, to begin, rising ethnic heterogeneity as a result of immigration has become one of the most contentious political issues of the day. From a draconian law targeting illegal immigrants in my home state of Arizona, copies of which are being proposed in about 14, maybe 22 other American states, I've forgotten. Uh, I think it's now 22. And other pending legislation against anchor babies in the USA, to the rise of right-wing nativist parties in Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom, to France's recent decisions to ban the burqa and expel its Roma, and the Swiss law that bans minarets, nativism 
and its evil twin xenophobia are clearly on the rise. There's a long list of nativist complaints. Growing numbers of Western Europeans fear that the hallowed rites and cultures of their long-standing national societies are being put at risk by an influx of Muslim immigrants. Many of these immigrants appear to resist integration into their new societies. Far from abandoning their native languages and religions and traditions, there are calls for Sharia, female genital cutting, and even occasional honor killing. In the United States, nativist concerns chiefly relate to instrumental rather than cultural concerns. Illegal immigrants streaming over the southern border are thought to be taking jobs away from natives while consuming welfare benefits and schooling and not paying for it, incidentally. At least that's the complaint. On both continents, there are accusations that the immigrants threaten the social order. Finally, since many of the immigrant groups have high fertility, there are fears of an impending demographic tidal wave. Of course, if immigration produced no benefits to these societies, it wouldn't have been permitted by native legislators. Employers in a number of key American industries rely extensively on immigrant labor. Im immigration provides a highly motivated labor force that tackles many jobs that natives spurn. It's long been known that on average, immigrant motivation is superior to that of natives because unlike natives, they self-select their country of residence and often pay high pecuniary and personal costs to arrive there. Moreover, their higher rates of fertility and consequent taxes they pay and the commodities they purchase help maintain the increasingly overburdened welfare systems of their adopted homes. But do the economic advantages of immigration trump its ostensible social and cultural costs? Many of the arguments about the deleterious effects of heterogeneity involve their purported its purported consequences for the provision of collective goods such as health care, education, and law and order. There are heated disputes about these consequences, but little in the way of definitive data, in part because illegal immigrants, one of the targets of nativist ire, are hard to count. As if this were not confusing enough, there's also a lively debate among social scientists about the general effects of heterogeneity on collective action and by implication on the provision of collective goods. In the first place, there's a lot of debate about how to even measure ethnic heterogeneity and especially about the adequacy of one of the more popular statistical measures called the Ethnolinguistic Fractionalization Index, or the ELF. I don't aim to summarize the, that literature here, although it's obviously crucial for an appreciation of the findings of large N quantitative studies. But the measurement quantities, quandaries, go beyond mere statistical considerations. Are genetic or cultural definitions of ethnic difference more salient for collective good provision. An article by Tsuda 
in the very current issue of a journal that you know called Nations and Nationalism, looks at the policy of ethnic return migration in Japan. One of a small number of countries that has encouraged immigration of overseas Japanese from Brazil and elsewhere, anticipating that genetic similarity would ease their integration into Japanese society. However, it turns out that these immigrants face the same kinds of exclusionary barriers that all immigrants face in Japan, despite their genetic similarity, because they've been living in an alien culture. Thus, it's likely that cultural heterogeneity is more salient than common descent for the production of collective goods, at least insofar as Japan is concerned. Now, there's a good deal of empirical evidence that social heterogeneity of all kinds weakens collective good provision. Some of this evidence concerns support for welfare state expenditures on health care, education, unemployment insurance, and other collective goods. So um, Baldwin, in 1990, argues that demographic homogeneity facilitated the emergence of universal welfare states in the Scandinavian countries, and that in the early 20th century, Britain's shift in a universal direction was eased by her demographic homogeneity. He writes, compared to the southern European countries that were more heterogeneous, Britain's lack of diversity contributed to relatively uniform welfare benefits. Uh, he argues that social insurance, especially of a solidaristic bent, was only possible given a certain degree of social homogeneity. In highly stratified populations, he writes, class and risk ran too parallel to each other for there to be any common agreement to redistribute burdens without, at the same time, restructuring the status quo. Although the groups to which Baldwin refers are classes and not ethnic groups, there's ample evidence that ethnic heterogeneity has similar effects. Relying on data from 121 countries, Sanderson, in 2004, finds that the 1960s level of ethnic heterogeneity is an important predictor of levels of welfare expenditure 30 years later. Using a number of different measures of ethnic diversity based on linguistic differences, racial divisions, tribal affiliations, and nationality, Sanderson's models consistently demonstrate the negative relationship between ethnic diversity and welfare expenditure. Soroka et al. in 2006 find that while international immigration has not led to a reduction in welfare state spending between 1970 and 1998, immigration has negatively affected welfare states' rates of growth. They estimate that if the proportion of the population born abroad remained at the 1970 level, OECD countries would spend 16 to 17 percent more on, uh, on welfare spending than they do currently. The collective goods literature in economics also provides evidence of a negative relationship between ethnic heterogeneity and the provision of collective goods. Hero's analysis of the United States done in 1998 reveals that ethnic and racial diversity is significantly and negatively related to welfare effort within a state, and minorities as percent of welfare recipients 
have a negative effect on a state's welfare effort. Hero and Tolbert, in an article in 1996, show that Medicaid expenditures, which are a form of uh, health uh, uh, national health insurance in the United States, are lower in states with larger minority populations. Alicina, who was actually one of the people who, who, who first started this ball ro rolling, Alberto Alicina of the Harvard Economics Department, Alicina, Bakir, and Easterly, in a number of papers, find that voters choose lower collective goods when a significant proportion of their taxes go to providing collective goods shared with other ethnic groups. As a result, spending on roads, schools, hospitals, and other collective goods decreases in more racially and ethnically fragmented United States cities. Further, there's greater income redistribution and other forms of collective spending in areas characterized by relative homogeneity. Other studies report negative correlations between ethnic heterogeneity and literacy, educational attainment, and infrastructure quality. Alicina, Glazer, and Sacerdote also demonstrate a negative relationship between social spending and transfers as a percentage of GDP and ethnic fractionalization in European countries. Suggesting that ethnic cleavages are, seem to serve as a barrier to redistribution throughout the world. Scholars have also observed that the most robust European welfare states, like Sweden's, were created when the most salient divisions were only those of class and gender. Alicina and Glazer find that racial and ethnic fractionalization explains a significant portion of the variation between social expenditure in the United States and in European welfare states using data from the 1990s they show that racial fractionalization and to a lesser but significant extent ethnic and linguistic fractionalization explain about 50% of the US-Europe spending gap on welfare. They cite political institutions as the other important factor. Indeed, ethnic heterogeneity is cited as an important factor in the development of the United States' relatively weak welfare state. Lipset and Marx in 2000, in 2000 argued that the American working class has always been more diverse than the working classes of other English-speaking settler societies, and that these ethnic, racial, and religious cleavages were more powerful sources of political identity for most American workers than was their commonality as workers. As a consequence, workers of different ethnic, racial, or religious backgrounds failed to recognize their common economic interests and focused instead on intra-class differences. Thus, ethnic diversity and working class cleavages contributed to the failure of socialism in the United States, which of course had consequences for class politics and welfare state development. Alicina Glazer and Sacerdote concur that racial fragmentation in the United States and the disproportionate representation of ethnic minorities among the poor clearly played a major role in limiting redistribution. 
Evan Lieberman's study in 2009 of the provision of one specific collective good, namely efforts to treat AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa, finds that ethnic heterogeneity negatively affects expenditure levels for the control of AIDS. And in a very recent study published just this year of uh, immigration and conflict, Danzigir uh, finds that antipathy between immigrants and natives is exacerbated not by ethnic difference alone, but only when it interacts with resource scarcity. This combination stimulates intergroup competition, as Olzak's, Susan Olzak's competitive theory of ethnic conflict predicts. Danzigir's findings suggest, therefore, that the recent efflorescence of xenophobia in Western Europe owes much to the recent macroeconomic downturn. Since most of the quantitative studies of this relationship, that is between ethnic heterogeneity and the provision of collective goods, date from the 1980s at the earliest because of data requirements, one might reasonably wonder if these results are somehow not generalizable beyond this recent historical era. Quantitative evidence from the 19th century, however, suggests that they're not. In a book called Heroes and Cowards, the economists Costa and Kahn studied the effect of social heterogeneity among Union troops in the American Civil War based on an extensive data set collected under the leadership of the Nobel Prize winner Robert Fogel. Some of the combat units assembled by the War Department were manned by troops from socially homogeneous groups, including those from the same town and even the same family. Other units were relatively diverse in their composition. Costa and Kahn find that the social heterogeneity of combat units is associated with higher rates of desertion, lower survival of soldiers in prisoner of war camps, and deserters' post-war experiences. Eliminating diversity from fighting regiments would have reduced desertion by more than 75% in white units and by more than 80% in units manned by former slaves. Since desertion can be regarded as a form of free riding, the social order of combat units was promoted by group homogeneity. And finally, um, Maureen Egger, in an article uh, in the European Sociological Review in two 2010, finds that recent immigration negatively affects attitudes towards national welfare states in countries that have different welfare regimes and historical legacies that affected ethnic diversity. Sweden from 1986 to 2002, the Netherlands from 1996 to 2006, and the United States from 1980 to 2000. In addition, she analyzes attitudinal data from 13 Western European countries, merged with institutional measures from the OECD, UN, and other sources. In immigration-generated diversity depresses support for welfare state attitudes, regardless of a country's institutional features and historical legacy. All told, her research shows that ethnic diversity negatively affects social expenditure and attitudes toward expenditure cross-nationally, 
holding resource scarcity constant, which is to some degree at odds with the Danziger's analysis. So that's a that's a, 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 a wide swath of literature suggesting that the relationship between ethnic heterogeneity and collective good provision is negative. There is some contrary evidence as well, and some contrary argumentation as well. And incidentally, uh, when I was talking to Parekh yesterday, he mentioned that Bob Putnam has also been doing some research uh, which also suggests that ethnic heterogeneity um, has a dampening effect on, on what uh, Putnam has been calling social capital. That would be consistent with this negative evidence. So at the same time, there's also some arguments suggesting that heterogeneity improves the prospect of providing collective goods. Will Kimlicka suggests that in contrast to the received view, as summarized above, multiculturalist policies have been shown to actually promote social integration and collective good provision in a large number of countries. This is in an article also published in 2010 in the Canadian Journal of Political Science. Since Canada is the quintessential multicultural society, the only one in which these policies are constitutionally enshrined, the effects of these policies there should be true a fortiori elsewhere, Kimlicka argues. And he claims that research reveals that Canadians are more likely to say that immigration is beneficial than the residents and less likely to believe that it heightens crime than the residents of any other Western democracy. And Canadian immigrants return the favor. They have high rates of identification with Canada. Canada is the only Western country where the strength of national identity is associated with pro-immigration pro attitudes. These findings are to a large extent, he claims, generalizable. Thus, Australia closely follows the Canadian pattern and the European country that ranks highest in this regard is Sweden. Note that these findings are totally at variance with Egger's more methodologically sophisticated analysis. Kimlicka also reads the Dutch case as supportive of the effect of immigration on the provision of collective goods, again in contrast to Egger's research. In a recent working paper, Damuri and Perry, two economists, uh, analyzed the effect of immigrants on natives' employment rates, which is a key collective good, and job specialization in Western Europe. They want to know how the inflow of immigrants changes employment rates or the chosen occupation of natives with similar education and age. They find that immigration has no effect on unemployment, but strongly affects the kinds of jobs that immigrants attain. Immigrants take more manual and routine type of occupations and push natives towards more abstract and complex jobs for a given set of observable skills. Finally, immigration promotes the specialization of natives into abstract and complex jobs. In an article that I wrote with uh, Friedman and Kanazawa in 1992, um, we argued that despite its effects on values, ethnic heterogeneity strengthens social order. We observed that whatever their distinctive values may consist of, that the members of minority ethnic groups produce in-group order, ethnic solidarity, to satisfy their own private ends. And once this local order is produced, it contributes to the production of order in the society at large. 
This is because group solidarity contributes to societal level order regardless of the norms of the ethnic groups. In fact, the more deviant the norms of the group, the more at variance with that of native society, the greater its contribution to societal order. All groups control members' behavior to varying degrees, and group members are consumed by the demands of their group. All, and although the group explicitly intends to provide an alternative to mainstream ethnic norms, <coughs> why else, uh, after all, would it form? The fact that their members are compelled to satisfy corporate obligations limits their ability to engage in other potentially antisocial activities. The principal exception to this proposition concerns groups which require their members to comply with norms that subvert the overall social order, like terrorist cells, separatist militias, and street gangs. And uh, Marwell and Oliver in 1993 assumed that collective action usually entails the development of a critical mass. This is a concept they take from Thomas Schelling. A small segment of the population that chooses to make big contributions to the collective action while the majority do little or nothing. These few individuals are precisely those who diverge most from the average. Thus, the heterogeneity of the population, especially the number of such deviants and the extremity of their deviants, is one key to predicting the probability, extent, and effectiveness of collective action. Their analysis assumes that decisions are interdependent, that individuals take account of how much others have already contributed in making their own decisions about contributing to a collective action. They also assume, and this is not unrealistic given the nature of our inquiry, that decisions are made sequentially, that individuals take turns making their decisions one, one at a time. This allows for one agent's decision to influence others. Now, in their work, um, they talk about production functions for collective goods, and they describe the effect, th these things describe the effect of a given level of individual contribution to the provision of a collective good. And there are um, a, a number of important types of production functions. Uniformly decelerating production functions imply decreasing marginal returns to the provision of the collective good. The first units of contribution have the greatest effect on the collective good, whereas subsequent contributions matter progressively less. On the other hand, universally accelerating production functions imply increasing marginal returns. In this case, successive contributions to the collective good generate progressively larger payoffs, hence each contribution makes the next one more likely. In this case, initial contributions of resources have only negligible effects on the collective good, and only after long startup costs have been born do subsequent contributions start to make a big difference in the collective good. Now, in most groups, there's a range of interest or demand for any given collective good. At the same time, there's a range of resources that are available to members in seeking a collective good. Both kinds of heterogeneity can contribute to the likelihood of a critical mass. So heterogeneity of interest leads to the exploitation of the great by the small, which is something that uh, Mansur Olson uh, noted in his classic book, The Logic of Collective Action. 
And at the same time, heterogeneity of resources promotes collective good provision. Highly resourceful agents may be more willing to contribute to the collective good because they may gain more from such contributions. So, not only are there divergent theoretical expectations about the relationship between ethnic heterogeneity and collective goods, frankly, there's uh, some disagreement about the evidence as well. So how can these divergent expectations about the effect of ethnic heterogeneity on the production of collective goods be reconciled? I suggest that its effect is mediated by the production function of the collective goods that are under consideration, and these functions can be accelerating or decelerating and linear and nonlinear or nonlinear. So uniformly accelerating production functions imply increasing marginal returns. In this case, successive contributions over time generate progressively larger payoffs. Hence, each contribution makes the next one more likely. Hence, initial contributions of resources have only negligible effects on the collective good, and only after long startup costs have been borne do subsequent contributions start to make a big difference in the collective good. The idea is that accelerating production functions favor the creation of bandwagon effects. Under these conditions, social homogeneity favors the provision of collective goods. By the same token, social heterogeneity ought to work against the provision of collective goods in this case, since such bandwagon effects are less likely to occur in highly heterogeneous societies. Bandwagons require everybody to desire the same goods, but the more social heterogeneity a society has, the less the consensus over the desirability of many collective goods, such as religion, linguistic policy, education, institutions of justice, and so forth. This is not true of uniformly decelerating production functions where the initial contributions weigh more than the succeeding ones. Faced with decelerating production functions, heterogeneous groups are more likely to produce collective goods because the minority of members who place the highest value on the collective good are likely to contribute to collective good production despite the possibility that the majority will free ride. In other words, highly motivated contributors have little difficulty in subsidizing other members who are unwilling to contribute in the absence of assurance that everyone else will. For these collective goods, heterogeneity of all kinds, including ethnic heterogeneity, promotes collective action. However, in homogeneous groups that face decelerating production functions, getting over the initial period where the returns to participants are negative defeats collective action before it can generate sufficient inputs to gain net benefits. Thus, collective goods that have a decelerating production function are unlikely to be provided by large groups or relatively homogeneous individuals acting independently, or if prov provided, they will be provided at an inadequate level. What about linear production functions? In these functions, every member of the group exercises an equal weight in determining collective good provision. In such groups, heterogeneity dilutes the capacity of the group to provide collective goods. Now, since the collective goods we're most concerned with here are produced by democratic governments, and since government decisions are ultimately affected by voting, this means that the production function for the goods most of concern to us tends to be linear. 
and more likely to be accelerating than decelerating. It's linear because in democracies all voters have equal weight. And it tends to be accelerating because a small minority is powerless to determine state policy under democratic rules. Instead, policy is determined by a majority of legislators who are often swayed by bandwagons of public opinion. This explains why the bulk of the empirical literature finds that ethnic heterogeneity tends to decrease a society's capacity to produce collective goods. The degree to which a given society is ethnically heterogeneous over the long run depends on its prospects for the assimilation of minority ethnic groups. The more assimilation, the greater the homogeneity over time, which increases the feasibility of collective action and thus the production of collective goods. For this reason, it's important to understand the determinants of assimilation. And ultimately, this depends on the institutional arrangements of the society. For example, the millet system of the Ottoman Empire discouraged the assimilation of Christian and Jewish millets at the same time that it reduced intergroup conflict. This kind of institution, however, is impossible in a democratic polity. Under democratic institutions, the openness of the native education system and labor market to the full participation of ethnic groups is key. This openness is limited by a number of factors, including macroeconomic conditions, depression, lowers the permeability of the labor market, the willingness of ethnic minorities to allow their children to attend native schools and to participate in native culture, and finally, the willingness of natives to enact policies of affirmative action and to subsidize the assimilation of minority populations, especially by giving them access to an adequate education. Excellent. Thank you very much, Professor Hexer. Sure. That was a very interesting paper. So now, um, if we can take some questions. If anyone has any questions. Yes, you at the back, sir. How important is the issue of homogeneity or hetero heterogeneity um, versus the basic um, starting conditions of majority culture? So is it not the case that some cultures, for whatever reason, are more um, open to collective, the production of collective goods, and others um, less so? I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't seem to feature at all. You mean independent of heterogeneity? Yeah, quite independent. Well, I... I, I, I what are you thinking of? I'm thinking of, of um, North European Protestant countries being early adopters of welfare states. Yeah, how do you know that's not due to homogeneity? There are presumably other equally homogeneous cultures which just um, produce welfare states at the same time. Well, I'm not sure that's true. In any case, the, the, uh, I, the, the, this paper doesn't go into that question at all. Um, it's an interesting question, and I, I think it's, you know, I think there are some arguments that the, the Nordic countries, for instance, did develop, I mean, there's some arguments that they developed such extensive welfare states because of their homogeneity, and that countries like the United States, for instance, developed such weak welfare states because of their heterogeneity. Um, uh, yeah, I don't actually know um, the extent to which this has been discussed, uh, you know, adequately empirically. But um, this paper presumes that there is no initial difference in the capacity of any society to... Don't you think that seems unlikely? Don't you think, without having studied it myself, or yeah. the empirical work, that it seems likely that some cultures are more open to the idea of the production of collective goods, and some cultures have a higher level of solidarity, whatever that means, than others? 
Well, you know, that's an interesting observation. It, that certainly has been demonstrated in primitive societies. There is a, a very interesting recent book by uh, Joseph Henrik, Sam Bowles, um, Kim Hill, and a, a lot of other people who have done um, experimental games in something like 20 primitive societies, uh, dictator games, uh, an experimental economics technique. And uh, what they certainly found is that some of these primitive societies were much more able to produce collective goods than others. I don't know of any equivalent uh, analysis of developed societies, however, and I'm talking re really mostly about complex societies. These were all stateless societies, essentially small tribal societies. Um, I think we can't rule it out as a possibility, but I wouldn't know what the basis of that is. Now, I think the basis of the finding that Henrik et al. had about the solidarity or collective good provision of some societies against others of those primitive societies had to do with the mode of production. Societies, I think, that they found that had a much more collective mode of production were much more likely to be cooperative uh, than those in which were like hunter-gatherer societies in which individuals could go out on their own and, and gain sustenance. You see, I'm not sure in any complex society that would work, but it's a very interesting possibility. I just don't know any other, uh, any, any evidence about that. But this, this uh, I think the assumption of much of this literature and the assumption, of course, of a lot of social science is that people are all the same. I mean, and individuals are all the same. And that um, whatever cultural differences there are between societies are the function of, of institutions rather than anything else. And that, you know, you'd have to control for institutional variation to see the extent to which that would hold. But anyway, I, I don't know the answer to your question. But, but these things presume that there is no initial um, pro or anti uh, thing apart from the factors that, that they've been studying. I think it's a reasonable assumption until we find contrary evidence. Right, that instantly, that contrary evidence would have to be holding a lot of stuff constant, you know, a lot of institutional variables constant. Excellent, great. Um, over to the gentleman in the second row, please. Um, I apologize for my question, it's very trivial, but I'm very unfamiliar with this uh, area of work. Uh, when we talk about immigration and immigrants in general, do we take into consideration different groups of people? And for example, if, when we talk about Canada versus the United States, we don't, in Canada, we don't have the problem of immigrants from Mexico coming in. And mm -hmm. we do have people coming in from Asia and different countries mm -hmm. based on their income, based on their wealth and this and that. And in that sense, when we think about Canada, we think of the immigrant group as people who are better off than other people in perhaps other countries. And Because of the, the rules for uh, getting into Canada. Yes. For yeah. example, when the, uh, people from different countries come to Canada, they have to meet certain standards. Right. And then based on that, we look at the immigrant groups as people who create opportunities mm -hmm. rather than uh, having burden on the opportunities that are already exist. So do we take into concentration this differences? You mean in this literature? Yes. I, I imagine that, that's, that uh, you know, any good study would have to take that into consideration, of course. Yeah, I'm not, I don't, I'm not in this literature. You know, I'm just sort of summarizing it for you. Um, and, you know, m m my guess is that that, that that would be taken into consideration in, in, in the cross-national studies. I would hope it would be, yeah. Right. 
And uh, gentleman behind you, please. Um, I'm just interested in what weight you would put on, um, sort of going back to the earlier point about sort of a priori different cultures, perhaps. Mm. Um, instead of looking at sort of bottom up, we sort of saw it as a top down, elite led or state led public culture, public cultural differences. Um, it just seems to me that taking Canada as the example of where strong sense of national identity um, is positive feelings to immigrant treatment, um, to multiculturalism, assimilation, etc. That sort of positive sense of multiculturalism as part of national identity stemmed from deliberate uh, political policy by Trudeau in the 70s mm-hmm. to sort of negate Quebecois uh, separatist uh, moves. Um, similarly, if you look uh, so that's sort of a top down um, policy that's been sort of fed into the national dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the Northern European states that adopted welfare, this principle of universalism, although you selected the NHS as a, uh, an example of a collective good, seems to me it could be thought of as more of a public good. Because for most of the people in the country, um, whether they pay taxes or not, uh, it's free at the point of delivery. Um, so it seems to me that if you had... Uh, but you have to be, don't you have to be a British citizen? Well, I think possibly illegal immigrants might have access, or if you pay a British citizen, would not pay taxes. I mean, I never had access to it. Or you could... E- EU may have access to it. Or EU, even British citizens who are free riders in certain respects, for example, they might not be taxpayers. Of course. Um, yeah, but but citizenship is it, it provides that entitlement. Sure, but but but, but that's yeah, and citizenship in that context right. is linked to universalism, which right. is a, an intrinsic part of British citizenship. Right. It's a sort of a priori distinguished. Right, but it's not a public good because an American can't come to a hospital in England. So I guess my, guess my question would be: yeah. What weight would you put there on this sort of top-down culture for um, you know for, for, the, for the topic under consideration? I guess I'm not sure what, about the question. Sorry, um, so, so, so you take North America. Yes. Do you think that um, increased heterogeneity, the dampening effect of increased heterogeneity on the provision of collective goods could be um, mitigated by a stronger uh, top-down elite lead on something like universalism or uh, Canadian attempt to reinforce multiculturalism as part of national identity? You mean, can policies overcome, can government policies overcome that sure, I, of course they can by providing various kinds of incentives. That of course they can, but you'd have to ask the question: How likely are those policies to be um, adopted, given given the ethnic heterogeneity of the society? In other words, the point is, given a lot of ethnic heterogeneity, much of this literature suggests those policies won't be adopted. See, that's the point. Of course, those policies can produce much more collective good provision. The question is, where do those policies come from? And in a democratic society, they come from voters, right? And so I think the overwhelming evidence is that at least in this historical period, um, voters are, native voters are, are less willing to redistribute their income in taxes and stuff to non-native immigrants, to immigrants, essentially. And I think that's true. Much of this literature suggests that that's true across very different kinds of systems. So it's as true in Sweden as it is in the United States, which I think goes against the kind of cultural argument that you were making before, back there, right? Because I mean, we think of Sweden as you know very sort of altruistic society and very much interested in helping out people who have less and so on and so on. But actually the effect of immigration in Sweden 
on, on attitudes about welfare expenditure is exactly the same as in the United States, which is always held up as the paragon of individualism and, you know, the opposite of altruism. So you would really expect a cultural argument to find differences between the effect of immigration on collective good provision in Sweden and the U.S. And the you best evidence... Them both a similar amount, but from a different stock, or are you saying that the Well, I'm saying that the effect of immigration is the same in both places. Yes, you're quite right that there's a different starting point, but this argument can also explain why there's a different starting point, you see. I mean, it would say, oh, sure, there's a much more extensive welfare state in Sweden because it was homogeneous when it was set up, whereas the, the U.S. has never really been homogeneous ethnically. It's always been a very, you know, uh, immigrant-based society. So Sweden's starting point, when the welfare state was built in the 19th century, was much more homogeneous than the U.S. That could explain why it developed so much more of a, according to this argument, right, an extensive welfare state. But the effect of immigration is exactly the same in both countries. And I think that goes against the cultural argument that you were uh, exploring there. Okay, um, I suppose building on that, I have, I have a quick question actually. Mm. So, if we if we take if we t if we take this argument, is is democracy not in the, in some ways hampering efforts at integration, if it's stopping the provision of collective goods? Sure, of course. Yeah. Sure. Uh, do you, do you see a possible way out of that for, for, for societies? <laughs> or? <laughs> you know, you know, President, you know, Prime Minister of England. So, what would you do? Oh my God, that, I'm not in that game. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I didn't run. Um, uh, you know, this is a really interesting question. Mm. It's an interesting question, not so much with, re I mean, with respect to this. It's a real interesting question when we look at China versus the United States, or China versus Western Europe in general, I suppose. But certainly you, the U.S. I mean, everybody knows that China has been growing at a rate that is unprecedented in world history. It's growing faster than any other country has ever grown. and. It's all, everybody also knows that the Chinese, uh, at this stage in their development, are investing massively in infrastructure, high-speed trains, airports, um, highways, buildings, all sorts of stuff which are collective goods, incidentally. And I think everybody also knows, certainly all Americans know, the United States government is totally unable to provide infrastructure. Actually, it's not too clear what the American government is able to provide, except soldiers in the Middle East. So um, uh, the, the, the whole system in the United States is full of gridlock. I noticed yesterday there were a bunch of students out on the street in front of Parliament, which suggests maybe that things may not be so great here either. So I mean, the, the question arises, okay, it's obvious the Chinese government is pretty damn effective at this point in time. But it isn't democratic. Is its lack of democracy somehow associated with its ability to provide infrastructure? And what's the problem with American investment in infrastructure? Well, the problem pretty much is it's democratic. <laughs> so the question that you're raising, Joseph, is a really fascinating question. And I think that we are all, all of us in in societies that really pride ourselves on democracy. I think we believe that, that in the long run, 
China can't be Chinese growth and, and, and social order can't be sustained because it's not democratic. And we believe very strongly in democracy, almost as a religious tenet. But I think, um, you know, actually the Chinese government may be more accountable than we think it is. The Communist Party in China is enormous and, and has enormous conflicts within it, and those conflicts are, are resolved to some degree via democratic means. And uh, it, it, it may, you know, this raises an interesting question about the efficacy of different systems. And one of the ways that we're going to be able to figure this out down the road is by comparing China and India. Because whatever else is going on in India, it's certainly a democracy. Mm. And, uh, you know, if I had to bet between who's going to do better in the long run, China or India, I'd put my money on China. So, but anyway, the question that you raised, very interesting question. Yes. Does your nose have a question? <laughs> I mean, the gentleman here has another question. Yeah, sorry, I don't want to sort of take over questions, just a very quick one. Yeah. Could that example be um, reverse engineered to say that... Excuse me, uh, yeah. Could, could that example be reverse engineered to say that the reason why the Chinese system works um, is not because they don't have democracy per se, they can work the system because they're so homogenous, and that such a system couldn't be, because the population is, is so homogenous. Why do you think that? Well, so for example, what I'm thinking is, so the question was, is democracy a hindrance? Right. Um, could it be seen that the only way to um, increase the provision of collective goods in heterogeneous uh, societies yes. is to increase um, democracy, so increase representation, mm. increasingly devolved representation, so more people have a stake in the provision of collective goods. Mm. So sort of the opposite to the point that was made. Because one of Parrott's points is about sort of the community of communities and how identity is dialogically constructed. So for me it seems that possibly the only way out of the malaise in highly heterogeneous societies is to further devolve uh, democracy, to increase representation, to have more things like referenda um, on a wide range of issues. That could be the only way out. Referenda have, have not played that role in the United States, for sure. But the premise of your question that China is a homogeneous country is wrong. China is not a homogeneous country ethnically. It's a very heterogeneous country ethnic, ethnically. Very heterogeneous. And I'm not just talking about t Tibet, either. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, different ethnic groups within China. The Han are only the largest and the most dominant. And um, um, it's an issue in China. And not, I guess one question is, you know, how is their government able to deal with that heterogeneity relative to some other governments that are more democratic? That's an interesting question. There isn't very much research that I'm, I'm not a China scholar. There isn't much research on uh, I'm not aware of too much research on the effect of ethnic heterogeneity in China. All I do know is there's a lot of it, and that we, uh, uh, I think we underestimate the degree of ethnic heterogeneity uh, in China. Can I just pick up on that? With regards to China, and when you were just talking about China and India and you know, looking down the road to see who's doing better, it seems that you had um, efficacy as your, your, your marker, you know, in terms of what doing better means. Yes. And I'm just wondering, you know, is efficacy really the goal? Because even in all of that uh, infrastructural development, like, you know, that that's, means a, a, a huge displacement of, you know, millions of people. And then as we know, we have... You mean with the dam? With the... The dam, Three Gorges Dam. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, or even, you know, the Beijing Olympics and all of the people that were moved around within yeah. the city. And, 
obviously um, Chinese government is able to, to do these things. And right. I, I mean, would the argument be that uh, with all of this infrastructural development, there's inevitably some kind of trickle-down effect that is, is going to, to reach people? And, you know, even, even still, how do we um, incorporate uh, the difficulties, environmental problems or, or water issues, you know, that China has? Which are you know this this development of efficacy might actually be worsening. You know, I mean, doing better. There's a lot of. Well, I mean, if I were going to go down that road, and you know, I'm not a China scholar, mm -hmm. right? I would say that the ability of the Chinese state to produce infrastructure, and you're quite right, some of it does displace people. Although, isn't there an Olympics? in London in 2012, and might that not displace some people? Am I wrong about that? In East London or something like that? Is that going to go on? Yeah, I think there's a few people that have been moved around. Huh? I think there's a few people that have been moved around. Just a few, okay. Account, yeah. All right. Yeah. They've been financially huh? compensated. What? I think they get financial compensation. And I'm sure that's true in China as well. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm not sure if it's quite as... Um, when is, is it here? You know, yeah, yeah. but in any fair, case. Fair question, yeah. uh, uh, in any case. Um, I would think that the efficacy of the Chinese government to produce infrastructure, which is, I mean, clearly right now much more capable of doing that than, say, the United States government. It presumably could also have a lot of efficacy uh, in terms of global warming and, and um, the other kinds of issues that you're talking about if it wanted to. Um, whether it wants to, wh whether it makes those decisions is an open question, of course. Although, you know, I think China is now the leading producer of green technology. And um, I, I think it's going to blow everybody else out of the water with green technology. And so the issue is, I suppose, that, that if, if the Chinese government has a lot of efficacy, it can do whatever it sets its mind to do, it can, it can do to, to a greater extent. You notice that the American government, for instance, or yours, you know, may not have a whole lot of efficacy, right? Or the French government, or the Italian or Greek government, right? I mean, um, but when the Chinese government decides to do something, you know, you don't get a lot of Tiananmen squares anymore. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, but I, I would guess that, that having an efficacious government is probably a, a, a good thing for the provision of collective goods, whatever they may be. I mean, one of them clearly is military buildup as well, which may not be to the advantage of other countries in the world, but only to China's advantage. I mean, they're building a lot of ships. Yes. I just wanted to um, press you on how you're using petrol to the end. Because I haven't read your earlier paper that you cited before. Oh, yes. About um, in group solidarity, you mm -hmm. do social order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that what you haven't talked about today is kind of a sense of cohesiveness mm -hmm. and the way that um, groups interact and those kind of transaction costs and communication between each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all about, I guess that also is about intergroup um, relations. Mm -hmm. And so that possibly in societies, that cohesiveness or kind of stickiness between groups. Um, cohesiveness between groups or within groups? Uh -huh. And that stickiness between groups or distance yes. might be a factor, regardless of how many groups there are, types of groups or the very interest. Mm -hmm. 
And, and you know, there's, there's some, some good literature about that question which suggests that societies that have a lot of cross-cutting cleavages uh, do a much better job of managing uh, intergroup differences than those that don't. And, you know, there's a, a, a very famous study of uh, violence in Indian cities, uh, Hindu-Muslim violence in, in, in Indian cities by Ashutosh Varshney, which uh, provides some very strong evidence that, that um, those cities in, in which there are cross-cutting cleavages in elite organizations within those cities had much lower levels of violence than cities in, in which there were no such um, uh, cross-cutting cleavages. This is a very old trope in social sciences. It was um, argued by Evans Pritchard. It was argued by Max Gluckman in a famous article he wrote called Peace in the Feud. It's a, you know, it, it actually was noted by George Zimmel in the 1920s. It's a very, it's a powerful idea. And so that's one important way in which um, intergroup conflict can be mitigated to some extent, is by creating as many lines of cross-cutting uh, ties as possible. Because that gives members of groups a stake in each other's welfare. Well, I didn't integrate that argument into this thing. I mean, and I'm not sure, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure anybody's really dealt with that relationship with respect to this issue. I don't think they have, to, that I'm aware of, in an explicit way. That'd be a very interesting uh, kind of research to do. I want to tell you that I'm not doing research on this stuff, right? I'm just trying to look at it from the outside. Yeah? Um, I wonder if you know if in these studies the um, socioeconomic cleavage has been controlled for? Generally, yes. Yeah. I mean, all the quantitative studies do that, that are, that are you know, good studies. Yes? People looked at societies which have become less, um, or less heterogeneous or more homogenous. Such as? I, I see what you're saying, yeah. Uh, very interesting, yeah. Very interesting question. Very interesting. I don't know. It's a very interesting question. You're right. I mean, as those societies become more homogeneous in the Middle East, with the expulsion of Jews and what, what have you, uh, uh, in Turkey, and so on and so forth, um, if this argument is right, we should see a higher rate of collective goods provision. I don't know if anyone's done that. That's a wonderful idea. A wonderful idea for a research project, really. Exceptionally interesting. Do it. <laughs> Terrific idea. I, I mean, that would one that would be one very very interesting test of the general thrust of. Do you think we know the answer already? I mean, these are not societies which strike one as sort of successful. Yeah, but you have to compare them before and after, right? And. You would have to. You would absolutely have to take that into account. That's right. Which might make it, might make it difficult. But I mean, you could look. I mean, another way of looking at it is what happened in the Spanish Inquisition. You know, what happened to Spain after the Inquisition? That'd be a wonderful historical study you know, in terms of collective good provision. 
I don't know the answer to that question. It's a really neat idea, but you're absolutely right that you would have to look closely at the political, uh, at the changes. To answer that point, you'd need to be trying to find cases where societies have become less, um, societies have become more homogenous, but without necessarily the disruption. Exactly. Ethnic cleansing or yeah. um, regime change or the, the things which are normally genocide, things which are normally associated with. Right. Yeah. But how do you purify the society without, without those extra uh, well, societies over long periods of time through integration and assimilation of these principles can become more homogenous without uh, um, sort of top-down. Yes, uh, over the long term, that's right. But you, but the point in, in general is you would have to control for whatever kinds of you know uh, institutions have changed in the in the interim. You'd want to keep that as as controlled as possible. So, for instance. When was it? In the 13th century, England, uh, England uh, expelled its Jews and Italian merchants, or something like that. You know, what was the? 1299. Huh? 1299. 13th century. Oh, 14th century. Where I was close. <laughs> I, I actually. Huh? 1299. Oh, 13th century. All right. So, um, you know, has that? You, you could look at that and see what was the effect of that on collective good. The trouble is there, you're talking about obviously very different societies, but you're also talking about unbelievably small numbers of people. So what? But if you're looking at a society becoming more homogenous, and it goes from 99.5 to 99.8. Yeah, but those weren't just a, a, a couple of random individuals. They had key roles in the economy. I mean, after all, there would be no point in expelling them if, they, if there hadn't been a reason for it, right? So... Um, I'm just saying that, you know, that your idea is, is a really interesting idea. It, it, it would be great to be able to figure out how to get at it. I think there would be issues of the kind that you're raising to get at it, but it's a really interesting idea. It's really worth developing. Excellent idea. I don't know that anybody's done that, you know, from this point of view. I mean, there are obviously lots and lots of studies of things like the, 